Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. And Paul, do you know what today is? Uh, Wednesday? It is Wednesday, (laughs) but it is also our 100th episode of the Gospels. This is Gospels number 100. Can we just take a moment and pat ourselves on the back for... I don't know if you could hear that. I was patting away. Yeah, that... Okay, does it seem like, on one hand, wow, we've really been doing these episodes for a long time, and on the other hand, does it not seem like, are you kidding me? We've done a hundred episodes already? That's amazing. It's weird. Time, it's almost like being in... The Holy of Holies, where time ceases to exist. Time and space. Ah. Weird, right? Yeah. Maybe that just shows that God has been helping us on our journey through the text together. See, there you go. If you're listening to our podcast, you can't say anything bad about us because obviously we're blessed by God. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. Hey, let's get serious. Where are we at? What are we talking about? Yeah, so last week our focal passage was on the story of Zacchaeus, uh, the chief tax collector, uh, and we wanted to specifically call out that he was kind of the worst of the worst to make his way up the ranks to being chief tax collector, but at the same time, seeing that attribute within his occupation showcases the change, uh, the true repentant nature that he had after... Meeting with Jesus, Jesus coming to his house and staying with him, uh, not only making amends for the monetary things that he had taken advantage of, not even making things even, but giving like fourfold uh, more than what was required. Uh, And Jesus affirms that in him and says that salvation has come to this house and calls him a true son of Abraham. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And, uh, you know, if you ever want to understand, okay, really, what is repentance? Okay, you've heard the definition. It means to turn or to turn around. A lot of people call it do a 180, okay? The thing is, it isn't just to turn and to turn around. The assumption is that you are not in alignment, in agreement with God. And so by turning, turning around, what you're actually doing is getting back into alignment with God's will and God's way, and most especially as expressed in Torah and and law, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, true repentance. It's amazing. Good picture. Well, as we do often, we've interrupted the story. We are still at Zacchaeus's house, but Jesus is now going to tell a parable. Want to hear it? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll tell it then. Here we are. We Actually, this is in Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 11 to 14, and he's the only one that includes this. So here we go. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. 
because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Oh, can you feel the uh, sort of underlying punch in the eye that's going on back here, Mm. Samuel? Yeah, this is really good. So Jesus, okay, he, obviously he's telling a parable, but Luke, again, and, and we haven't seen this very much, but we did see it recently, Luke is now telling us why he's telling the parable. It's kind of cool. They were near Jerusalem, which, okay, there's a lot you know, of messianic talk, questioning this, that, all these things going on. That's a big deal. We know that Passover's coming. All of the, the tension is building. So they're near Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that, I I guess we could say everyone in and around, in the room, at this little dinner, whatever it is, they supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. And we've seen this throughout, that, that expectation, come on, you know, be the conquering king, do whatever. We just were talking as they were on the road. Remember that some were amazed and some were afraid. Well, what were they amazed about? What were they afraid of? And we thought that, well, maybe it had something to do with Jesus actually coming into his kingship, all that kind of stuff. We didn't know. So maybe that relates here. But the inference here at least from Luke and his telling of the story, is that they were wrong about the kingdom appearing immediately. So as we read this, we have to keep that in mind. And of course, obviously, where we are today, we know that he didn't mean that at all. I mean, it's been 2,000 years for the fulfillment of the kingdom, but we also know, oh, but there's also the now kingdom that we can kind of, you know, reach out and grasp and bring to earth and and have that foretaste for ourselves and for others. So anyway, let's talk about the parable itself. What was he what was he t- saying? What's the story? Well, first, we have a nobleman. And I would say that in this case, he's going to symbolize Jesus himself. He's going to symbolize the Messiah. Now, he's going to go far away. Now, just as a side point, when we say that something is a long distance, especially back in first century Jerusalem, I mean, the way they traveled, all that kind of stuff, I think it's fair for us to also add, hey, doesn't that also mean that he's going to be gone for a long time? I think, you know, that seems fair. It's far away. It's going to take a long time to get there and back, plus whatever he's got to do there. And we've mentioned this before. I'm pretty sure I got this from Daniel. What What is his name? Lancaster. Lancaster. Yeah, sorry about that, Daniel. It's from Daniel Lancaster from FFOZ. He calls these journey parables. I doubt he's the only guy that, but I'm pretty sure that's where I was introduced to it. Anyway, this is a journey parable. So he, this guy, or Jesus, if you just want to go directly to it, he's going 
for the purpose of receiving a kingdom. Well, that kind of fits with our story. Uh, but in, in context, that means that there's going to be a definition of boundaries. You know, what exactly is your kingdom? Well, it goes from here to here and from there to there, that kind of thing. And there's, I, I'm assuming, like some sort of official ceremony, if you will. There's some sort of anointing. That's what they did to kings back in the day. They poured the oil on the head, and, and this represented the Spirit of God coming upon them, all that. Of course, Jesus has been walking around with the fullness of the Spirit. We know that. But, you know, in the parable, that, that's the image that we've got. All of this is representing, in this case, and we don't know it yet, but we can sort of look back and go, it's representing Jesus's resurrection and his ascension and his time with God in the heavenly, seated at his side during the final exile. And I can't help myself. You got to go read Hebrews to really get a good image of this. There's so much about what he does there and in the temple and all that. It's just fantastic. But anyway, back to the story. After he goes away, then the nobleman, who is now a king, he's going to come back. And this, for us, I think is pretty easy to look back and say, hey, this represents Jesus's second coming. Now, again, for us, it's kind of easy for us to see all of this because we've had all of this time and seen so many other things, and that's the story that we're familiar with. Uh, But for them, it was probably a little bit uh, harder to see. Okay, but in the parable, we also have 10 servants. So what's going on with these guys? Well, in a way, these might represent uh, somebody like the apostles, uh, specifically, you know, if you wanted to try to pick specific people. Or uh, it may just represent disciples of Jesus or God, just generally speaking, like it represents all of them. Now, Given the rest of the story, I actually lean more toward it representing all disciples generally. But, you know, good arguments on both sides, whatever. But what does he do with these servants? What does he do with these disciples? Well, he gives them each a mina. Now, notice there were 10 of these servants and 10 minas. And so we're kind of making the assumption that just means he gave each one one. Some people interpret it as he gave each of them 10. I don't know. That's an awful lot of money. A mina, Sammy, you have any guess as to how much money that represents? Not off the top of my head, no. How much did we say a denarii would represent? Uh, wasn't that a day's wages? Yeah, a day's wages. And we talk about a denarii a lot in the, in the scriptures, so, you know, that one's kind of familiar. A mina would represent, I think today, something in the area of three months wages. So, I don't know. Pick a number. What if you made uh I don't know, 30 or 40,000 dollars a year? Well, I mean, that's like 10 grand. So, I mean, it's it's a really substantial amount of money for any normal person, and these were servants. So anyway, and that's if he only gave them one. But anyway, he gives them the money and he tells them specifically, engage in business until I come back. And this is another thing. This is the reason I remember it probably came from Daniel Lancaster, because not only does he call it a journey parable, he makes this relationship. He says that the journey parables are all about 
personal responsibility in the absence of supervision. And I don't know why that stuck with me, but it's it's a cool image of these journey parables, and it's very, very appropriate. I mean, I, the reason I remember it is because I like it so much. That's a really good point to notice about these parables. Personal responsibility in the absence of supervision. Hey, you guys, my servants, come here. I'm going to give you a mina. It's three months wages. I want you to do business with this until I come back. It's kind of cool. Now, just to be clear, we're not talking about actual, you know, doing business like in the the practical and actual sense. These, just like everything in parables, they represent something. So the minas and the doing business, they represent the Torah and good works. Okay? Just want to make sure that that's clear. Now, disciples that, you know, people like us, and, and especially disciples in Jesus's day, because they were you know, Jews, and they had the actual covenant from Sinai, but disciples generally, we are supposed to use the instructions in the Torah to bear fruit of righteousness. We're supposed to bring about increase. And, and okay, on one hand, that's definitely in or within and for ourselves, right? That, that righteousness brings increase for us, but Maybe even more importantly, it's for others also, whether it's through teaching them or whether they benefit from these acts of righteousness or whatever it might be. So again, and we've talked about this a bazillion times, it's much better to look at the Torah as instructions rather than law, but obviously for Jews, they were in covenant, there was law involved. And Samuel, this reminds me of a verse, at least it did while I was studying. I want you to read for us Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yeah. And this, it's so good because it's talking about us. There's no confusion there. It says that we were created for good works. And if you wonder what those good works are, All of Scripture is very consistent that those are Torah doing the instructions. And notice it even adds right here in Ephesians that these are works that God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's not that you sit around going, gee, I wonder what I think a nice thing to do is or what a good thing might be. How should I define love and care and all? No. That's not how it works. That is the image of the garden. When we define good and evil for ourselves, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's not what this is about. We have to use his instructions. So anyway, there's that. Uh, So those were the servants. And then, oh yeah, the citizens. This is kind of crazy. We have citizens. They represent the rest of Israel, I think in the immediate context, that is true. You might also back off a little bit and say, hey, couldn't they also represent, you know, like all of the nations or the Gentiles? And yeah, yeah, okay, maybe they do. Maybe they do. But these citizens, they're not servants. So we would think of them as not disciples of the Christ or of God. They're not servants. But they were in some way attached to this nobleman. Well, that's really super obvious to see with the rest of the nation of Israel. 
But seriously, is not all of mankind attached to God? Are we not attached to his Messiah in some way? So it really affects us all, but they're not servants. And that's important. But at the same time, and this is also important, we can see that in some way they were, because they're attached, even if it's, you know, quote unquote, indirectly, they were in some way beneficiaries of his wealth. Obviously, all of Israel, we could see that, but even all of mankind benefits from God's creation and his maintaining of creation. Remember, we've got verses like he causes his rain to fall on both the evil and the good and, you know, stuff like that. God is caring for all of mankind, even while they are rejecting him, hating him. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful image from, for, for God anyway. Uh, it's also, there are the benefits of his loving mercy. And again, we see that in those verses. But these citizens, these citizens, and again, I think this is where you kind of see a dig, if you will, at the rest of Israel. They didn't like this nobleman. They hated the idea of him becoming even more powerful. And in this story, that means he's becoming their king. And so they actually send a delegation to, wait a second, who are they sending it to, Samuel? What's it say there in the text? Um, It just says they sent a delegation after him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We don't really know where this nobleman is going to be made a king. That's kind of weird. It's just this nebulous, unnamed thing. And we don't know where they sent their delegation. But Okay, given that Jesus represents the nobleman and disciples represent the servants and all this kind, who do you think this, who, who do you think they're sending the delegation to? Who is Jesus going to to be made king? Uh, it would be God the Father. Yeah, yeah. There's just some sort of authority, some sort of ruler somewhere who is able to do this. And in the end, there's only one obvious choice. It represents God. So in the story, a delegation is sent to ask, okay, Mr. Unnamed Ruler and Authority that, you know, we know secretly represents God, we're here to ask, please don't make this nobleman our king. We don't want this guy. We don't like this guy. Please, no. And that is an image of Israel. And sadly, it also represents all of mankind. They reject God, even though God has provided the most awesome and wonderful of gifts. They keep doing it. So so God's Messiah is rejected by these citizens in the parable. Side note, Samuel, there's kind of this interesting and weird association with uh, first century history. Uh, There was this point in time where there was a delegation of Jews, a delegation of Israelites who were sent to Rome, kind of interesting, they asked that Archelaus be removed because his rule was so cruel. Now, maybe this has nothing to do with anything, but it had to be a fairly well-known part of Jewish history as you were alive right there in the first century, right, experiencing it. And so it could be that Jesus tells this particular parable in this particular manner 
to to also use that example of hey you guys already know what this is like you've already done this you can see all this stuff this was a real life example well you're doing the same thing with me except it's not with Rome you're doing it with God so anyway i just thought that was kind of a cool connection yeah that's super cool um and it continues to affirm this dichotomy that the gospels seem to paint showcasing the differences between God's kingdom versus the kingdom of empire that was present in Jesus's time which was Rome um yeah and it i think that the readers listeners of the gospels would have been aware of this to be like oh my goodness like something like this happened within our own country's history and it was with a a leader a ruler who was truly cruel and um, unjust and I can't believe we as a people did the same thing to a spiritual leader who actually was coming to earth to try to bring peace and unity and re- repentance yeah. uh, he was the complete opposite the antithesis of cruelty yeah. uh, and unjust like he was true justice is true justice so yeah, I, that's just really a really cool parallel to think about it is I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great <laughs> image. Good picture. Um, I did want to say if people are want, are trying to wrestle with the delegation being another character whenever they use the pronoun him, if, if they were sending the delegation to the nobleman himself, why would they quote and say, why, why wouldn't they say, we do not want you to reign over us? The text says we do not want this man to reign over us. So I'm just pointing that out that the text in the way that they are delegating seems to, in my mind, clearly suggest that this is a different character compared to the nobleman. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Totally different character from the nobleman. Yeah. Well, well, let me be clear or maybe help clarify for me, I guess is what I'm saying. When it says we do not want this man, the this man is the nobleman. Right. Right? Yes. Yes. And so the delegation is, I mean, presumably, it's even more than one person. It's a it's a group of individuals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just meaning that, like, if someone was just kind of breezing through the text and they read the first part of verse 14 where it says, citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, like if if you didn't pay much mind to that, you might fall into the trap of thinking, oh, they were just gonna—they're just running after the the nobleman that left just a few verses prior. Oh yeah 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 yeah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good point. I, yeah, I, I didn't see it that way, but I can imagine how somebody would. So yeah, that's right. Very good. Uh, and yeah. then the final thing for a let you go and to continue on the your take that the 10 servants represents maybe all of the disciples of christ and god um i think we've mentioned it previously in other episodes but there's this concept within judaism called gematria where it's um, pointing out the significance of numbers in their culture and in our western mind numbers are just numbers uh, they're analytical, but in a Jewish mind, numbers have meaning and weight and deeper significance behind them. So 10 is a combination of 7 and 3. 
Uh, seven is in Jewish thought is the idea of fullness. That's where we get Sabbath, seven days of creation. Three is often associated with community. You know, you have the three aspects of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, and so when you combine those, it's like sig- signifying the fullness of community. Yeah. Uh, therefore, ten servants, you know, complete nature of the body of God. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Good additions. But we've got time. We should keep going on, even though that was like a perfect ending. <laughs> Just leave people with good stuff. Yeah. And besides, we're right in the middle of a parable. That would I think be people our, would appreciate finishing, yeah. Our classic take. Just yeah. kidding. See you next week. <laughs> yeah, let's keep going. So we're still in Luke, uh, and this is Luke 19, verses 15 to 21. It's back to the parables. Here we go. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, Here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Ouch. (laughs) That third servant was kind of rough. Yeah. uh, anyway, but let's let's see what's going on here. So, number one, I think we should point out, uh, gee, too bad for those citizens who sent the delegation saying, please don't let this man be our king, because, you know what? The nobleman gets his kingdom, and he returns. Now, from our perspective, we're looking at, you know, what is the parable representing? This is, you know, the second coming. This would be Jesus returning from heaven, and, you know, we still await that. But we're going to talk a little more about that this stuff later. So what do we got? We got these 10 servants. The, the guy says, hey, bring all the servants to me. I want to know what you've done with what you've been given. And, you know, the phrase in the parable is what you've gained by doing business. And as we, as we said, this is Torah and good works. And so what he's looking for is righteous fruit. So the first guy... He has turned just that one mina, which, okay, we said it was a pretty substantial amount, but he's turned it into a total of 11. He had one, and it made 10 more. Pretty awesome, right? So he was not only producing his own righteous fruit, but he had caused many others to do the same. 
You see that imagery there, Samuel? It's kind of cool, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This is the Christian life. It's so awesome. So the king, or, you know, this newly minted king, Jesus, as we would say, well, this king was pleased. He even says, well done, good servant. How much do you want to hear that? Very much so. Yeah. Well, you better get on your Torah, figure out what it says, and do his will. That's all I have to say about that. Because this guy was faithful, he was going to be given authority over 10 cities. Obviously, the 10 cities are supposed to parallel the 10 minas that he earned. And I don't know, did you notice, Samuel, that the guy didn't even say that he had earned? He said, your mina earned. Mm. God, your Torah has produced fruit. It has produced increase. Your Torah has produced 10 more minas. It's it's amazing to me. It's amazing. Uh, But anyway, uh, he gets 10 cities. Now, this this continues. Remember I mentioned there's sort of that interesting parallel with Archelaus? Uh, It kind of continues that. For the faithful, you could be a governor. That means that you could rule along with the man in charge over some region. This was a Roman thing. If you were one of Archelaus's buddies, just as an example, well, it, as long as Archelaus is ruling, you might get to be a governor over a city, right? So, so th- that parallel kind of continues, just wanted to point that out. Uh, But just to be clear, these cities aren't to be taken any more literally than anything else in the story. It's not like we as disciples of Christ should be expecting to rule over a city. I don't know exactly what the kingdom's going to look like. Maybe there will be something like that. I don't know. But we shouldn't take it as if, oh yeah, it's totally literal. That's, That's my future. We do know, however, they represent some sort of reward in the coming kingdom, whatever that might look like. The kingdom is, and we've talked about this before, Samuel, the kingdom is in itself a reward, but we've also noted that, okay, but there are rewards in addition to that. We don't know a whole lot of detail about them, but there are rewards within that kingdom. So it's kind of a cool thing. Now, people we people talk about crowns or mansions or whatever. I think that's all kind of really misguided, but, but, but the rewards, again, they're not literal. And, and we're just kind of left with a bit of mystery. But anyway, that was only the first servant. The second servant, he performs admirably well. He turns his one mina into a total of six. He had one, it gained five more. Now, he was not only, just like the first one, producing his own righteous fruit, but he caused many others to do the same. But I don't know if you noticed this in the text, Samuel. He wasn't told, well done, good servant. I did notice that. Do you think we're supposed to make anything of that? I'm trying really hard not to read into the text because he still gave him authority over five cities. Right, right. Yeah. And and a lot of people, they look at this and they try to make a lot of it. And you know what? Maybe there is something here. Maybe it's like, hey, the one guy, you know, with his tenfold increase... Okay, he's what that's well done. That's a good servant. The other guy, well, you know, he was just okay. 
It could also be that this was just the form of storytelling. He didn't take the time to completely repeat himself while telling the parable. We're just supposed to understand, hey, if he got five cities, well, then that means he also did well. He also was a good servant. I think, you know, in some ways both have merit. I'm actually more comfortable giving the guy the benefit of the doubt. You you could look at the guy and say, oh, well, he didn't do as good because he could have done more. He only did five when he could have done ten. You could look at it that way. Or, you know what? Both of them reached their potential. I mean, we're all different, right? Samuel, pretend that I'm really good at something that you're not as good at. Well, do you want to be judged in comparison to me? No way. No, but but you want to be judged in just like in relation to yourself. What was my potential? What was I capable of? I didn't have the same sort of gifting or personality or whatever it might be that Paul has. Just judge me on my own merit. So that's more like what I see in this. The guy was equally rewarded. He, he did equally well. We just didn't get the full text in the parable. That's all. At the very least, I think we can say this. As far as these cities represent some sort of reward, we could at least say, you know what? There appear to be differing amounts of reward in the kingdom. Is that a bad thing? I, I don't think it is. It just is something, just sort of an, an objective point that we can note. There's something about that, right? But, okay, so that's only two servants. Remember, there were 10, but we kind of skip through them and we get to the very last one, or at least that's the way I read it. It doesn't say that explicitly, but whatever. We hear about one more servant and it's important. He also is a disciple. He is one of the servants. Do you, do you got to catch that? He took what he had been given and he hid it. Not only did he not cause others to produce righteous fruit, he didn't even produce any himself. And if that wasn't bad enough, then he turned around and blamed the nobleman become king, which in our understanding, our interpretation, that's Jesus. He's saying, you know what? You're just too severe. You ask too much of me. I'm a, I I can't do it. (laughs) And this is, I think, at least one example in scripture. If you wanted to see something similar, you would go back. There's the story of a guy named Nabal. At least that's how I pronounce it, whatever. Uh, It's back in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Go check it out. But again, this guy His complaint is, you're asking too much of me. You want prophets, which we're saying is righteousness, from nothing, which in this case would be incapable little old me. You're asking me to do something and I can't do it. It's not like you've given me all that much. no no deposit, no sowing. And, and what I mean is, what he's saying is, you're not blessing me enough. That, that's what this guy represents. And sadly, this last servant 
I think, represents a very substantial portion of what we call the church today. And I don't mean buildings or services. I'm talking about the people. A very substantial portion of, let's just say, people who call themselves Christians. That's who this last servant represents. We're not really pursuing righteousness the way you, God, have defined it because, you know, we're just a bunch of sinners, righteousness, filthy rags, blah, 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 all that. It is sad. And the thing is, they're not pursuing righteousness, at least not the way God defined it in his Torah, which is the only true valid definition. They're not doing that in Jesus's absence. There's no appearance of outright evil. Okay, we're not saying that. It doesn't, it does, you don't appear to be like bad people, but it's passive and it's ineffective. It's kind of a useless Christian walk. You're just hiding your mina in a hanky. Oh, what a worm am I? It's, a, it's, it's sad. And so people need to hear this parable. I think, sure, it was obviously very relevant for the people that were sitting there listening to it in the moment back in the day, but this is relevant for all of us today. 100% agree. Um, It's kind of shocking, too, that this is present in this parable within a first century context because I'm just, I mean, it... It fits so well with us currently in the 21st (laughs) century um, in our Western mind when we have been taught in the church that our whole reality is built on a fundamental or a foundational brokenness first, and then there's the redemption and the salvation and stuff that comes later, whereas like true Judaism that's founded on Genesis and the creation story says, no, your foundation, your fundamental identity is goodness that God has declared. Um, and then, and then brokenness comes later and it still gets fixed and stuff. So yeah, I try to get back to it. Yeah. I wonder like, were there people in first century, you know, Israel that were struggling with this in the same way that we, in the 21st century are struggling with it now uh the the tension between fundamentally good versus fundamentally broken and letting that be either the Mm. fuel that helps us strive towards good works or uh using it as an excuse yeah well you know people being people i would have to go yeah i bet you there was the same mindset back there it just looked a little different but underneath it all it was exactly the same i do think though I do think, and and this is, uh, I guess this is me giving the church, the people of the church, the benefit of the doubt in a different way. We start with, I think, a deficit in basic foundational teaching. So many people fall into this idea of replacement theology where, yeah, you know, the Old Testament, it's just history. The law isn't for us. None of this, none of that. Okay, They just immediately dismiss it. They never really take it seriously as an option in their Christian life at all in the first place, which is really, really sad. 
we, through the podcast, you know, we're trying to change some of the thinking around that, get people to go, look, we're not saying become Jewish. We're not saying that you have the same covenant obligation, but we're saying this this little gold mine of Torah that helps you even understand who God is and how to be in his image, it's for you too. They just don't have it. And so I, I think I, uh, I'm giving the people of modern day a, a little bit of uh, a pass in that, not really a pass, it, they have an extra problem in that they've been given bad information right from the get-go, whereas if you're raised Jewish in Israel, I mean, the obvious draw and, and uh, need for Torah and keeping Torah and all, it's kind of built in to culture, you know? So there was that difference, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's still interesting. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I did also want to point out, um, and I think you alluded to it, as well um i am getting some very strong imagery in this section in terms of ecclesiology on the the future reality in the kingdom and the world to come number one that whenever god is going to judge all of humanity He's going to ask them about their deeds, their works, what they have done. <laughs> right, right. And then the second aspect is that there is this image of those that were gifted with being able to experience God's messianic kingdom, like being resurrected first. There, there's some thing for them to actually rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. Oh, yeah. Um, So I have a few verses just to point out as references, and then maybe we can go from there. So the first one is in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, and it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. You know, you could also put that word as authority authority was given to them like doesn't that sound just like this parable where the nobleman is saying you know here are 10 cities for you to have authority over and rule here are five cities like it's like a participation it seems like it's we shouldn't treat it as like um other religions where it says like oh like when you die and you go into the heavenly realm you've you know you've got 70 virgins and concubines waiting for you like it's 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 almost like more governmental or political in the sense that like God is establishing a commonwealth on the earth and those yeah. that have been on his team are getting to be a part of that uh, yeah. commonwealth as God is executing true justice uh, on the earth. Right. In this age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. That's a and cool then, connection. Cool. Image. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then later in that same chapter, Revelation 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Yeah. So, like, I mean, let's go back to the parable. That sounds just like the person coming before the the nobleman. It's like, here you are, I have an extra 10 deeds or 10 minus for you, or five, or actually, I didn't produce any minus. So I just yeah. think it's important to 
for us to make people aware of that, that our works are important uh, and that they're they're going to be a part of how we're judged in the next realm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really important image because so often the message of Christianity and, and people, they even call this the gospel, which it's just, it's so sad. But the message to people is, you know what? You just got to believe in Jesus and then you get to go to heaven forever. And it's like, okay, that seems really cruel not to let people know that, mm. oh, by the way, there is a judgment. And as Paul writes, everyone will experience the judgment. Everyone will experience resurrection. Uh, guess what? You're going to be judged on your deeds. Well, what's the measuring stick? In what way am I being judged? Well, you'll be judged with Torah. I don't know how to make that any more clear. God has given you clear instructions. It depends on what you do with them. It's 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 just an amazing picture. So, oh, Samuel, so good. Yeah, you you are on fire this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and here's one more little ember yeah. to the fire. Second uh, Timothy chapter two verses eleven, uh, in the first part of twelve, it says, uh, "The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him." Ah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, you sound like you had something else to say. Say it. Nope. Oh. Well, now we've got this awkward silence. Uh, I just, I just, I just <laughs> dropped the mic. That's all. <laughs> okay. Yeah, those are really good. I love that. And and I my my hope is that people listening to this, you know, that c- kind of gives them something to do outside of the podcast. It's like, hey, you know, I got to go read those. Got to go look at some of this some more. This is all challenging stuff. And, and really good for people to hear. But you know what, Samuel? I know we kind of acted like the parable was done, but it's not really. There's more hmm. to go. Shall I continue? You shall. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 19, verses 22 through 26 says this. He said to him, uh, just for memory's sake, this is now the guy that has returned now as a king and this wicked servant who just buried in the hanky. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, we've seen that kind of language before, that stuff there at the very end, but we'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, let's go ahead and review and kind of see what we got in here. So this nobleman, and we've, we've said this is Jesus, he's actually angered by this servant's behavior. And I'm going to say it again. This servant is a disciple. It's not some, you know, regular pagan human somewhere. This is a disciple. 
and he's angered by his behavior. He uses the words of his servant's excuse against him. Oh, oh, I'm severe, am I? Oh, I take what I didn't deposit, do I? Oh, I reap what I don't sow. Is that right? Well, if those things were true, a wise man would have, at the very least, have taken the money and put it in a bank to collect interest. So even if everything you said was true, you still behaved unwisely. This all represents the servant doing the very least that he could do, at least in terms of pursuing righteousness in his own life. Basically, he did nothing. And just to pour a little salt in the wound, he actually refers to this servant as wicked. Hmm. And I know, I kind of, I get in this episode of the podcast, people could maybe think that we're being kind of mean. You know, to them, maybe. I don't know. But I'm sorry. He called this servant wicked. And, And again, this is a passive, ineffective Christian not pursuing God defined righteousness. This is a really big deal. And so I'm sorry if you feel like, you know, we're cutting a little close. Uh, or if we're, you know, stepping on toes or whatever little idiom you want to throw in there. But that's what this parable is talking about. So then this nobleman, again, Jesus, he does something strange. He has those who are standing around. He has them take the mina from this guy, this wicked, passive, ineffective guy, and give his mina to the one who has ten And even in the parable, Jesus is telling this parable, even the people in the parable object. They're like, come on, that guy's already got 10. And so it shows us a couple of different things. Number one, we as a disciple, as a Christian, if you want to say it that way, we can squander the reward that God has offered or that God has intended for us. That is sobering. We can squander it by inaction. Number two, to whatever reward we might earn in this life, God is willing to add from the reward that has been squandered by others. So if you do what is right, you do what is required of you, you act as a true disciple— you may receive reward that exceeds anything you have, you know, quote unquote earned, if you want to talk about it that way. No additional work required. God just adds it on. And I got to think, because you see so many people in real life today squandering their reward, or at least that's the way it looks, you know, I'm not the judge, but boy, there's a lot of extra reward waiting (laughs) So I don't know, maybe in a way it's kind of good news for some and bad news for others. I don't know. But there's that phrase, to everyone who has, more will be given. And and as I said, we've seen Jesus use this language before. Now, it definitely addresses the idea that I think this is maybe the easier one to comprehend. The idea that if you are faithful with just a little responsibility, you will also be faithful with much 
And so, you know, God is willing to trust you with much because you were faithful with little. Now, this particular usage right here offers some nice additional clarity, at least I think. And it's this. There is a reward for our faithful, loyal, obedient behavior in this life. That's a good thing. And and I think it's it's like a given, something you can count on. And here's the bonus. God is willing to add to it over and above our work. So there's like bonuses can be earned, right? It's kind of a neat thing. However, this is important. You have no guarantee of reward without faithfulness and loyalty and obedience. And that is to say, you can squander it, waste it, or we might even say lose it. There is no irrevocable portion assigned to you. Now, just as a side note, there is no explicit indication here of an outright loss of the kingdom. I think that it's very reasonable for some to look at this and say, oh no, they definitely lose out on the kingdom. Okay, maybe they do. And I think that someone else might go, well, I don't know, maybe this is showing, you know, you're least in the kingdom or something of that nature. And it's like, okay, you know what? Maybe that. The point is, because it's not explicit, we don't have to be hard and strict about that, at least in relation to this parable. We just go, yeah, well, you know what? It's, it's not explicit. So whatever, it could go either way. I think for me personally now, I think that it includes the loss of the kingdom because what was given is taken away. And that thing that was given, at least the way we're interpreting the parable, the thing that was given was Torah. And when you think about it, eternal life It's actually epitomized by this idea that the Torah is written on the mind and on the heart. So, if that's what's taken away, then for me, okay, no life for you. And, and, you know, kind of base that on some of the previous scripture we've covered and, you know, other things, whatever. Now, you don't have to agree with me. Maybe, you know, maybe you think that, no, there's still a chance for the kingdom in there. Okay. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to say I'm right, you're wrong. But for me, it, it, it makes sense that what's being taken away actually equates to, dude, you've like blown it all. No kingdom, no eternal life, no world come, nothing. You messed up. And remember, in the parable, you were considered a disciple. That's crazy to me. But anyway, one final little bit. The parable of the talents that's in Matthew 25. A lot of people connect these two. And I mean, to be fair, they have a lot of similarities, but I just think when we get there, we'll talk about it. There's a different kind of purpose and a different kind of message in that particular parable. Uh, And in some ways, we might even say it's like the opposite, but we'll address it when we get there. One overall point that that we we shouldn't miss, uh, again, Jesus is communicating that the kingdom won't just come immediately. It will begin now and it will grow over time. We have to do the work of the kingdom. That's the, we have a mina and we have to produce gain, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I think 
we've seen this happen throughout history. Maybe there have been some ebbs and tides and, you know, different things like that. But I, I think this is, is a description. It's an image of exactly what has been happening throughout history. So anyway, there you go. Yeah, that, Paul, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I know we're, we're already at time, but I have questions. Do, do what you got to do. First thing I wanted to say, so towards the end there, you were talking about how the the character in the story that the Mina was taken away from him and how that can be epitomized with Torah, uh, written on the mind and heart, life itself. Uh, if that's taken away, you have no life for you. I, I, this is how I'm going about treating it. I think that people need to be reminded that we're not saying that it's as if that character or that character in this story or in a general sense for any human it's as if they had at one time they had uh eternal life the badge of it or whatever and then and then they lost it later it's more of like uh at least in my mind our our life and whatever weights and burdens that god has given us to be able to carry and what we do with them uh at the end of our life we're going to give an account for it and then the the result is we're either going to be rewarded life eternally or we're not going to be rewarded life eternally so i mean i just i know people can get into theological debates on well if i had it before like why should i lose it or you know it's right you can have it and then you can lose it It, i think to try to make it simple like it's going to be a verdict like we're you know we're either going to be declared uh exonerated based on what we do with our life or we're we're not yeah and in this context uh the the whole concept of eternal security I don't think that's really in play here. I think the message of this parable would be something more like, yeah, you only thought you had it and you never really did Mm. because you never really were faithful. Your faith was nothing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. And I'm just saying, yeah, I I just don't think that's even in view here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then the final thing, hopefully this won't take too long. How we're we supposed to treat the description of the king slash nobleman, both the the third servant and then the nobleman himself by calling him a severe man. I know other translations say an exacting man. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I read that, it doesn't sound like that's a positive quality. But uh, we said earlier that the the parable is correlating the king or nobleman to jesus and messiah right. so right is it, is it more of those things like in this parable the king was severe but how much more you know great is you know the messiah of the universe in his true justice like can you help me hash that out with with uh, this phrase of him yeah, yeah, and that's a difficulty in that okay so some people look at this and they think of it from the perspective of okay this is in in some ways an accurate description, you know, the severe taking not what's not deposited, reaping what's not sown. And it's like, yeah, you know, uh, the God requires a lot. Jesus requires a lot, whatever. 
but you didn't respond to it. So that that's like one area of that's a way to interpret it. Another one is, and and if you noticed, I was being kind of snarky in my delivery. It's this is a misconception. This this last servant is looking and going, you're a severe man. You're taking what you don't deposit, reaping what you don't sow. And it's like, yeah, the thing is, that's not even true. You're making that up in your head. This is the way you see me. And we could back off a little bit and say, this is the way you see Torah in your Christian life. Mm-hmm. And it's not even true. And I'm sure there are other ways. And all I can say, Samuel, is... There is there is no part of my brain <laughs> that can actually reconcile or, or comprehend the idea that Jesus, God, whatever, is somehow taking what he did not deposit or reaping what he did not sow. That that just that does not compute. There is no God or Jesus in that. He gives so far beyond what we could ever be required to give back or whatever. And so I look at it and I immediately go to, yeah, that last servant, he had a complete misconception of who this king even is. He he didn't even understand what was being asked of him. He didn't comprehend the benefit he was already gaining by even being in, you know, the group or whatever. So I don't know. I, I I throw that out there to say, look, we could look at it a couple of different ways, and I favor one way, but how does that help or relate to your question? Oh, Paul, you nailed it. Uh, oh, okay. b- breakthrough moment, and this uh, this is so oh. good. Like for those that uh, stick around to the end, this is the bonus footage that you didn't even know that you needed because, uh, <laughs> like you. While you were saying that, I was like, oh, so like maybe we could like rephrase, interpolate. Uh, Luke nineteen twenty two for him to for the the king to say you thought that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit reaping what I did did not sow so why then did you not put money in the bank and yeah I, yeah. I just went to blue letter Bible real quick and I looked up the Greek word for no get this Paul for the Strong's like uh, entry Uh-oh. it is to know by perception. <laughs> so you you perceived, you perceived. <laughs> nice so nice. that is that is awesome that's, yeah that's a nice nugget to i just think we need to just head on out of here that was so good yeah well there's a tiny little addendum to the parable and all that stuff but you know what we'll pick it up at the beginning of the next episode it's okay okie dokie thanks for listening to the okie dokie most podcast don't forget to subscribe leave us a rating and a review you can find out more information at www.okidokimos.com. Please feel free to get a hold of us at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.